The Triathlon Show 397. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Bernardo Gonçalves. Bernardo is an expert in aerodynamics and aerodynamic testing and optimization. He's the founder of AeroEdge and a pro continental cyclist. He is the person who has earned the trust to work directly with uh, scientific triathlon pro triathletes on their aerodynamic optimization process. And in this episode, we discuss all things aerodynamics and uh, how to go about improving your aerodynamic efficiency. Uh, I want to mention that uh, Bernardo and I, we do, as you have heard now, collaborate uh, professionally and we are also good friends. Uh, but that being said, there are absolutely no incentives for me uh, to have Bernardo on the show other than the fact that I think that he is one of the best in the world at aerodynamic testing and optimization. And uh, as usual, I want to share that kind of knowledge with a wider audience so that we can spread knowledge, spread information, education, and uh, get everybody to raise their level because that is just the one of the most fun parts of triathlon, isn't it? That being said, of course, we do have sponsors of this podcast and uh, this episode, it is Precision Fuel and Hydration. They help athletes perform at their best with electrolytes and fueling products and with free online tools education at a patented sweat test you can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate sodium and fluid intake and you can also book a free 20 minute vehicle station to chat through your plan with the athlete support team i have used their entire range of products for a long time and i think they are absolutely brilliant and you can get 15 percent off your first order by using the code tts23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to senate the senate indoor swim trainer allows you to improve your technique power and swim training consistency even when you're short on time it's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool and it is a perfect complement uh, to pool and open water swimming because it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming like your catch or your power and it, you can isolate these aspects more easily than you can in the water you can try the senate risk-free for up to 30 days so if you don't love it just send it back and you can get 20 percent off your first order on senate swim TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Bernardo Gonçalves. Welcome to Dutch Afton Show, Bernardo. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good, Michael. And you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, can you give uh, the listeners an introduction to yourself? Tell us more about who you are. So, I'm Bernardo, and for those that follow the podcast and read the show notes, probably they are familiar with my name. Um, so I'm a mechanical engineer and also a professional cyclist. And as uh, I also do some work for uh, Scientific Triathlon and that Triathlon show, and I write the show notes for the podcast. Um, from an academic background, I'm a mechanical engineer. I took um, a, ma- a master's in mechanical engineering at the University of Coimbra, and with a thesis focused on um, evaluating and optimizing uh aerodynamic track so developing models to do in and focusing on field testing and uh so that we could uh basically um develop um some different models that what you see right now uh basically what you the the the, the models that are that are the aerometers uh, are based on and uh 
because of that, I started a company called AeroEdge uh, last year in August. And since then, I've been working uh, with triathletes and cyclists to try to optimize their performance, not only with aerodynamic testing, but also with other services, for example, bike fitting or event preparation, basically. Uh, from a sporting background, I'm also I am a professional cyclist. I race for UCI Continental Team XP United. I've been racing for in the continental scene for several years right now. And yeah, I've been, uh, for example, in the last two weeks uh, of recording this podcast, I've been racing in Portugal and in Poland, and now I will be racing nationals. Uh, but of course, it's like the professional scene of cycling, but at a lower level, at the continental level, not not at the world tour, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, and of course, I've been working uh, with Michael for several years in in the podcast in different ways. And yeah, if you go with the pro- portfolio of the of the podcast in the in the website, you can see that I think from uh, the episode. 305 i've started writing the show notes so if you i also have some a bit of background about uh, what it takes about the physiology and all um, all the major topics that they are discussed here in the podcast so yeah, thank you michael for having the for giving me a, a tutorial about what it's like what's a performance and importance of triathlon here and what it's what it takes actually to be a pro triathlon and the coaching world and everything involving triathlon yeah, that's a nice added perk of the show notes gig too, that you get a, a kind of a free education um, or paid education, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> um, but in addition to the to that work, though, we have also collaborated with your aerodynamic testing. So, so you have tested uh, some of our pro athletes within scientific triathlon, and, and of course, before that, uh, you have tested myself as well. So I, I was the first or one of your first guinea pigs, I think, and. And before, um, yeah, I started referring my athletes to you. Uh, I had a long experience of of being tested by you and optimizing my aerodynamics with you. So, so I, I know your work uh, on the aerodynamics side very well, and that is what we're going to talk about today. So, and we're going to try to make it a bit different, so it's not the same as the other aerodynamics episodes that we have done with other guests, but going into some topics in a bit more depth and uh, yeah not just doing the usual how much do you say by getting good wheels good helmet and so on because we have already covered that in the past um and but we can start with some basics about quantifying the importance of aerodynamics basically so so if we look at uh, let's say uh, you can choose your example how you want to give it but let's say half or full distance triathlon what is the difference between going from a normal but very suboptimal aerodynamic setup to an okay setup to an excellent or very optimized setup? Can you quantify that both in terms of CDA and then in terms of time saved over one of the standard distances? Uh, yeah, sure. This That's actually one of the first question that people ask me when they want to start optimizing this part because they heard on a video or so that aerodynamics is important and uh, for people to understand why aerodynamics is important is that, um, you know, from the power that you put, most of it goes to overcome aerodynamic drag. Uh, so, um, if you can optimize the, the external force that impedes, uh, that yeah, impedes you from going faster, you will be more efficient. And as you know, the more efficient you are, the more faster you will go for the same power output. And that's the the, the ultimate goal. For normal people, uh, the values that I will say here are typically 
average of a race, for example. Let's say that uh, I say, uh, for example, let's look at a course in, for example, in Kona. Uh, typically, athletes will have average CDAs. Uh, for example, pro athletes will have uh, average CDAs of around uh, 22, 23 uh, meters squared of CDA. And uh, that's because it's not as low as what you see in the literature for, or people claiming in forums like 019 or 018. Just because people, you have to consider that we have a full setup and people tend to move around and uh, eating and breaking. So we, we accounting for all that their average CDA in the end, their average efficiency, what I call aerodynamic efficiency is around 0.22, so 0.23. But if we look at the lower end, like a, a beginner, not beginner triathlete, but maybe a triathlete with a standard triathlete, a triathlon bike, uh, standard wheels, TT cups, and uh, yeah, a normal position, I would not say aggressive, maybe comfortable, we would be talking about a CDA of uh, 0.285 to 29, around that, for a 70 kilogram triathlete. And... Um, if we if we assume that that athlete goes in Kona and rides at 200 just, watts... Just one point there. When you say the weight, that is because, of course, if you're a bigger athlete, you will have a bigger CDA, or a smaller athlete will have a smaller CDA. So that's a, a you know an, an average-sized uh, person, basically, that you're giving the values yeah. for. Yeah. Yes. Normally, you know, most of the athletes tend to center around between 70 to 80 kilos, not much 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 heavier, 70 to 80 kilos or 170, of course, in the male side, uh, for example, 175 to 185. So this CDS, yeah, it will be more for that range. If you are bigger, for example, you might have a CDS of 0.31, 0.32 on average on a race day. Uh, But if you are, for example, I just tested yesterday uh, an athlete that was 59 kilos and this CDS was, his baseline CDS was 0.23. So it's normal that uh, smaller people have smaller frontal areas, so they will be they will be more efficient. Uh, but uh, considering this case, and if we put this athlete with seventy kilos riding at two hundred watts in an optimized pacing strategy, he will ride the the corner course with, for example, if we consider the conditions of twenty twenty two, he will ride the course uh, around five hours, five hours or two, five hours or three. And for uh, for people now, if we uh, for example, we they they would come to do some testing, and for those athletes, it's actually pretty easy to get uh, some good improvements in aerodynamics. For example, if we improve their setup, their position, they're maybe doing some investment in some equipment that would allow them to adopt a better position. Uh, we probably could get them to a CDA of around maybe like within easy gains, probably around 20, 0.26, 0.25. So we would be talking about a percentage gain of like 10 to 12%, just with some simple stuff. And um, that would mean that over the same course in, a, uh, in, um, in Kona, they would save around 10 minutes uh, for the same power output. And if they... One thing that I like about uh, the work that we do is that we do longer-term programs that we help out this long-term, and it's possible possible for age groupers to achieve over the long-term if they are consistent with the work and they believe in the work that we do and in the recommendations. It's possible to achieve like professional value, professional level, uh, efficiency level, uh, uh, levels of CDA. And in that way, that would mean that, for for example, for this uh, uh, rider riding at 200 watts, he could uh, do Kona in uh, 4 hours 43, so tw- saving 20 minutes. 
So with which is a significant gain if you consider that, for example, uh, you had professional uh, uh, professional athletes last year doing Kona at four hours thirty. So to wonder was if we can optimize aerodynamics. Aerodynamics plays a big, really big role, especially in that course. And I, of course, I'm saying Kona, but for example, if I we can do the same thing for Lanzarote, and if I consider the same values, so for example, the baseline of zero point twenty nine. Uh, in Lanzarote, I would have two hours forty-seven, and uh, and uh, if for the, I that's would, for the for the half distance Lanzarote for the half distance, yes, for the half distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, uh, it would be two hours forty-seven, and if I we would do an optimization program with that athlete to the point that they would get a professional uh, level of CDA, they would get probably a saving of eight to nine minutes. So still a considerable gain, even though the the distance is smaller. So we can make definitely make or break a a, a, a race just with the the optimization in the in the in the cycling speed, basically with your dynamic testing. Yeah, yeah. And when we're talking about getting to those professional level CDAs, obviously that entails optimizing everything from equipment and and body position and and i guess body position is what i want to go um go in depth about in this episode because that's something that is well that's the hardest part but also probably the most important part um can you can you discuss that do do you think or how how important really is body position to optimize in the grand scheme of things when it comes to aerodynamic optimization okay uh Considering aerodynamics, when you look at a rider, for example, from the frontal view, what you see is mostly you only see the body. You can't, you almost don't see the the bike, especially on these super bike jets you have right now with the integrated uh, cockpits and integrated uh, nutrition and everything. And uh, so, for those cases, for example, the 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 aerodynamic uh, drag um, because of your body would be around sixty to eighty percent of the total drag. So it makes sense. The most important part uh, for us to optimize would be the position. So, for example, uh, if you, it, we are getting to the point in the cycling industry and triathlon industry where you cannot do much more in a bike uh, because, of course, uh, everything is getting so optimized that uh, any gain in uh, in aerodynamics would be. Uh, like marginal so for example you might have a, a bike that costs fifteen thousand euros that could be slower than a five thousand euro bike just because the five thousand euro bike can be optimized to your position so it, that's something clearly to consider when for for listeners or when approaching like uh, equipment so but of course uh we what we want to do in our case and that's what i'm spending most of the time when working with us is actually trying to get we have the rider and we want to have the rider in the most optimal bike not trying to fit the bike to the athlete because that doesn't work uh but of course in when we are talking about an athlete we have to, we have to talk about uh, three different modalities it's not only about aerodynamics we have to talk about their physiology their biomechanics and of course the balance with the aerodynamics but uh, and of, then the fourth part will be the goals and the uh, and the type of event that we are doing because um, one thing uh, that no, when you not go to a normal bike fit they try to fit you in a perfect position that but however I'm 
I would claim that that perfect position does that does not exist because the fastest position for you, the most optimal for position for you at 40 kilometers per hour will not be the same if you ride at 20 or if you ride at 60 because the the external parameters that you have to overcome will change. If you're climbing, your your optimal position will be different from if you're descending. That's why you see you don't see uh, athletes sprinting in a super tuck or in a aero bars because it doesn't make sense from a biomechanical standpoint. So that's something that we have to consider and we have to work with each athlete to understand, okay, what is the type of event? Wow, how can we within your limitations about your biomechanics, how your body behaves on the bike, and try to understand how we can balance that uh, that part with their physiology, or meaning with their uh, capacity to put efforts over the long term, their fatigability, their durability, basically, and their ability to hold a position that is the fastest for their the prescri- the, the prescribed effort, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. 60 to 80% sounds a bit low like you i've heard 80 to 90 percent even from the body but or yeah can you comment on on those numbers a little bit more uh it depends uh it, of course everything has everything in, in the sports it depends for example if you're riding in an upright position uh the percentage uh, imagine your bike your cda of the bike will be between 0.08 meters squared the only the bike crossing. If you put the, the wind tunnel of uh, the bike on the wind tunnel alone, it will be a FCD of like 0.08, 0.01, and the rest is from the body. So, as you get, uh, if you are riding upright, your CDA will be around 0.3 or 0.4. So that means that the proportion of the CDA because of your body will be higher than the than. Um, for example, if you would ride in an aero position where your CDA will be 0.19, 0.19 there the bike takes more importance. So it's that's why you see that the like for example the the most as you get more professional as you get more efficient the importance of having a fast bike will get more important because it, you can only do so much with your body. Uh, it then it, it comes it can we can have a point where for example Dan Bingham he claims to have a CDA of 0.15. So that means that probably his body is so fast, like the shape of his body is so fast that probably the bike takes like a, a 50 or 60% of the total drag, which is crazy. But uh, it's we are talking, we are reaching right now these levels of optimization. Right. No, I understand now. And and I also think that um, when when I was thinking about 80 to 90%, it's probably the, the numbers that are quoted for the 80 percent of your power to 90 percent of your power goes to overcoming aerodynamic drag which is different yeah, than 80 percent of your cda is from your body yes. so there's yes. two different things so for example for people to understand uh at 40 kilometers per hour uh, let's say that you are putting 240 watts uh around um 80 per 80 to 85 per well, 90% maybe, uh, will be to overcome aerodynamic drag. So you would put 220 watts to overcome, uh, 250 watts, 215 watts, sorry, uh, to, to overcome aerodynamic drag, 25 watts to overcome rolling resistance, and maybe 5 to 10 watts to overcome the drivetrain efficiency if you're riding in a flat terrain. That changes, of course, if you start riding uphill or going downhill. Yeah, yeah, got it. So, so when we talk about optimizing the the body position on the bike, do you have any 
kind of common train trends that you have seen that this tends to work when you start work with start working with age groupers they come for their first session with you are there things that you see that okay this is these are things that we often do and they often end up working and and what are the those those trends and and then the long-term development from there in how you try to over the long term get the age grouper to adapt to the most optimal position yeah there because uh, aerodynamics is uh, it, it's a complicated issue, especially with uh, when we were working with athletes and a human body, because the human body unfortunately is not uh, aerodynamic shape. For us to un- try to understand how we can, uh, uh, for example, when we look at a position, we uh, we need to understand a bit what how what are we are trying to optimize, and we are trying to optimize CDA. CDA is a product of the coefficient of drag CD. And by the multiplied by the frontal area, so we are tr- actually trying to optimize two parameters. Uh, the the drag coefficient is associated with the shape of the body and how streamlined the body is. And unfortunately, our bodies are not as uh, streamlined as we wished. Uh, so, uh, for example, for you for you to 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 get, to have an understanding, normally, for example, there are some studies from from the Bert Bloken, I think, from the the, the uh, Eindhoven University, and he did some CFD studies where he showed that, for example, our CD coefficient of drag in a for several positions would be between zero point six and zero point seven, um, and uh, for example, a cylinder as a, cili- a cylinder, if you look at your upper arms, as a, a coefficient of drag of one point two and a streamline. A body, for example, an airfoil could have CDs of around 0.04. So imagine if you have um, a cylinder with the same size of an airfoil, the the drag produced by the 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 cylinder is 25, 24 times bigger than the the drag produced by the airfoil. So that's one thing that we are trying to optimize first. So the shape of the body, how we can streamline our, our positions and our bodies to, you know, to reduce our CD. And then, of course, we are trying to reduce our frontal area. And that's where you see like softwares, like we, we try to narrow the shoulders and everything to try to reduce the frontal area because uh, as the frontal area will have a, will have a proportional effect to the, to the CDA value in the aerodynamic track. So the lower the frontal area, the lower is the, the, your, your aerodynamic track. So with this said, of course, everything that will improve those parameters will, 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 will allow us to get more efficient. So, for example, for to get a more streamlined body, uh, going uh, stretching out probably is a good option. However, there's a catch because people are not that flexible. Unfortunately, are not pros that can stretch uh, into extreme positions. So uh, we have to be careful uh, with that work because if you you stretch your bodies too much, you will have uh, issues, For especially for triathletes. They will recruit other t- types of muscles and they will probably get a get injured and we had several cases already where we had to be really careful with the way we do the changes also for example if we want to optimize that frontal area we know that going narrow will probably be faster however that's not that simple actually for example if we go narrow at the front normally they say that uh, uh, going narrow on the tt extensions will be faster however it's not we have to also look at the other parameters that I explained before. We have to look at the biomechanics and physiology of the athlete. If the athlete actually has broad shoulders, if we narrow the, the elbows, their shoulder blades will separate. 
and uh, probably they will actually it will have actually an opposite effect on the on the um, on the frontal area. Your frontal area will increase. Therefore, you will slow down actually if you narrow the arm. So it's actually a, a really hard balance, and it's hard to say for one athlete or for these that the general that this will be faster. It's actually only with testing that we can actually be sure, okay, this will actually be, be faster because uh, the complicated thing about working with human bodies and blood bodies in general is that you're trying to, if you do one thing, one change, that change will affect the flow around the rest of the body. So you don't know, at least uh, from the field testing, you don't know how, how that could be impacting. And for example, you might have helmets or skin suits that one change might be positive but if you wear another setup probably that uh, that change might be detrimental for your performance so it's a, a tough balance but generally one thing that is for certain and that's something that we can agree all aerodynamicists and all people working on this area is that if you have a position where you can control your head so you get you can get your head between your shoulders and you can get the, the head as low as possible will be a fast position and that's confirmed because that's pretty simple if you have a, a, a position where you can control your head to be between your shoulders you're reducing your frontal area you're probably improving your cd so you will be faster got it yeah um and uh one thing that you already alluded to earlier with the uh, 15,000 euro bikes and uh, sometimes being challenging to work with and not being able to get into optimal position because of all the integrations, uh, that leads us a bit to, um, yes, yeah, sometimes if you want to get into an optimal position, you might need to do changes to your bike setup. Uh, so things like uh, stems, cranks, and so on. So can you talk about these potential changes that you might have to make to to basically get put your body in a faster position and then also what are some of the limitations that you see with some bikes okay. that were, that makes it difficult uh the the most uh this is actually one tricky one and, and that's something that we deal every day uh, because people come with us and they bought it bikes that we cannot work with basically they or at least we don't we cannot fully extend uh, cannot use the the athlete's capacity or athlete's flexibility and mobility to their maximum because they bought a bike that doesn't allow us to do that. And for example, the, the issue with integrated cockpits is that not only is a pain to try to change the setup, uh, but also you have a limited range of, of motion. So uh, if you, for example, if you want to play with the reach and checking if you're going uh, longer or for going narrower or something like that will be faster, you will have those. Uh, uh, you, you might not be able to do it uh, to the extent that you wished, unfortunately. And for example, especially as you go up the, the price cap, uh, for example, if you want a bike with already with ergonomic uh, DT extensions. So in that, that sense, it's, it starts to really, really, really be complicated to actually optimize the, the position. So, uh, you know, and then, of course, for example, if we are talking about the cockpit, we also have limitations about how narrow you can go because normally we have bottles in the, the extension that we you need to, to place between the arms. Normally, that's the place to put it. Uh, then you have to consider dehydration. You have to consider all the, the spares that you have to put in. So, uh, you know, it's uh, something to, uh, to consider. But, of course, uh, there are a lot of small things that, if we have, um, um, for example, in terms of stem, if we don't have an integrated uh, 
uh, cockpit, we can do other changes like uh, trying longer reaches, uh, trying out stems, trying out TT stacks, and so on. That probably would not be able to do in on a normal uh, ten thousand or fifteen thousand euro bike because they would that would be actually pretty limited. And of course, uh, one thing that I been researching and of course if you read online for several years there are people trying to sell this concept that unfortunately there's not much research on it and especially i'm focusing a lot on the crank length and because there's a lot of studies on power output and crank length but there's not actually a lot of studies focusing on how we can use crank length to the full capacity and how can you optimize the the crank length to the um, to the event that we are doing because uh, you know, uh, we know from research that uh, if we open the hip angle, we will produce more power uh, generally over for any uh, any athlete. So, um, how can we use that in our favor to become more efficient on the bike, and how can we use it for the events that we are doing? So, probably I would say that the crank that we use for climbing, for for example, the ideal crank that I use for doing a, a uphill time trial will probably not be the same that a uh, uh, triathlete should use and will probably not be the same that a track sprinter should use for their 200-meter sprint. So something, unfortunately, that there has not been too much focused yet, but uh, it's definitely an area that we uh, actually tend to focus because it's the primary factor that allows us to put power on the bike. And at the end of the day, we can optimize the aerodynamics, but it's the balance between aerodynamics and the power output that will allow us to do faster on the bike. What would you say right now with what we know for the average female triathlete and the average male triathlete, average in terms of size, I mean, uh, and preparing for a normal course like Kona, uh, so nothing crazy climby, uh, just a TT course, what would what would you say that would be the typical or your crank length recommendations for for those two sizes, or would it be the same even for the two? Um, it would, uh, it would depend on the goal and the flexibility of the athlete, and because it and it will also depend on the position. If you have a rider that has a really comfortable position, probably crank length doesn't matter that much because the hip angle will already be quite high. However, we have the theory, and probably this is correct, and this is this you've seen this in many like if you just scroll on Google and you start reading forums, as you more go more aggressive, you close the hip angle. So anything that allows us to hip, to open the hip angle at those more extreme positions will be probably beneficial for for uh, for triathletes. So of course, I'm I'm on the on the on the on the side that. Having shorter cranks for for super aggressive positions is probably most the most beneficial. So you know you see bikes fitted with 170, 175 cranks, and I even okay even I will not look actually on the size of the body when fitting the the when looking at the the rider. So for example, I would just because the rider is one meters one 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 meter ninety, it doesn't mean that this crank should be longer or shorter. It means, for example, if if that athlete has a crank with one hundred seventy millimeters, he can have that if he has a really comfortable position. But probably if he's actually on the edge of the aerodynamics, probably he has a really really uh, close hip angle. So probably for him. Going shorter cranks may be more beneficial because it will allow because it will allow me to produce more power, based on the, on the literature. So 
it's not uh, as tr uh, as linear, let's say, because of the size, but as you get more optimized, probably the the low the shorter the crank you should use. Mm, yeah, that, that makes sense, but it's really interesting because I think that we, a lot of people, myself included, would assume that there is some relation to to size. But actually, yeah, it makes sense as you say that no, it's related to the to the position really. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, it's it just because. Uh, for example, you you might have a rider. Okay, they have really long legs, but that also means that they also have li really long, uh, uh, like uh, probably they will have really uh, long torsos, really long uh, uh, upper legs, and so and quads, and so the, probably their angles will also be a bit uh, uh, a bit more tight, and so that's why you normally do the studies based on angles this, instead of the based on the leg, leg length because the angles you can re, uh, you can replicate with every uh, every athlete while with uh, actually with lengths and everything it's a, a bit more complicated so i think at least uh, from what i've seen uh, like uh, I, I have athletes that run uh, i have athletes who like that probably are almost one meter ninety, and others that are one meter sixty, and I probably recommend them uh, the same crank length, despite uh, that those discrepancies, because one is, uh, pro for example, the the, the athlete with one sixty probably has a more comfortable position than the the athlete with one meter ninety or with a higher size, but is is more aggressive and is trying to actually you know ride faster. Mm, yeah, and. Uh... When is there any way that you or how do you look at the need to run off the bike uh, in uh, finding the right position? Is there do you do you need what are the considerations that you need to make there so that you don't just yeah. ride the fastest bike split, but then can't actually run well? Yeah, that's and that's something that uh, really has been something that I'm really really concerned about uh, because. As you said, you can have the fastest bike split in the world, but then if you cannot run, it doesn't matter that much in triathlon. So you have to be able to run on the bike. And the more aggressive your position is, the more uh, recruitment in the glutes, the more recruitment in the quads and the lower back uh, you will have. So that's something that we have to be keep, keep mind, mindful of, of, of when working with an athlete because most athletes or yeah, every athlete, even professionals, will have some kind of limitation, some weaker link that if we force it a bit too much, if we try to do a change too aggressively, it will suffer in the end. So what we, we really have to be mindful of that and trying to make changes that do not, or at least trying to be it, instead of trying to put the athlete in the fastest position, probably we will have to to do a longer term approach and I understand maybe doing a mobility analysis and understanding, okay, there's some limitations here. If we are having issues, maybe we have to dial back and trying to first uh, ensure that we have the mobility to, uh, to hold a certain position before going more extreme because the, the only thing that we do not want to do is actually trying to fit an athlete and the athlete gets injured. So uh, we really try to compromise. There's, there's a compromise for sure to be done uh but i also believe that uh as we that's why we take a longer term approach uh if we do a longer term plan we can work on those uh limitations and if we can work on those limitations then we can adapt faster positions if we, and if we can adapt faster positions we can save uh time we can save our legs or we can say put less power for the same for the same speed so we then ultimately will perform better on the run 
So that's basically the mindset that we have when working to try considering running off the bike, because of course, our goal is actually to have the fastest bike split and then the athletes doing a PB on the run, and which is really hard to do. But fortunately, we had already some really good uh, success stories of athletes that actually got not only more aerodynamic, but also then can do actually faster run times just because they put less power on the bike. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. So let's start talking about the testing methods uh, that you use. So yeah, just give us an overview. What are the methods that you prefer to use and why? Okay. Uh, in the in the general uh, sense, we all we, at AeroEdge we use uh, fuel testing. Um, of course, with, with the advent of aerometers, this has become a possibility uh, because well, now we can well not only aero, uh, aerometers but also the models that allows us to quantify uh, the the changes in the position. Uh, there are other ways of doing testing, as you've seen with the wind tunnel and CFD. We, uh, I, from my perspective, wind tunnel testing and CFT have their place. Just, but I think cy- uh, cycling and triathlon will become a bit like uh, what we are seeing in the F1 or any motorsports um, or any motorsports uh, uh, modality. So, uh, what we are seeing there is that we, people use and Teams use the, the wind turn on CFD mostly for research and development of products. And then they will go to the tracks to validate the, um, the, the results. So even you might go to a wind tunnel and push, set you up in the fastest position possible. But then if you cannot ride it on the road, it doesn't matter that much. So the position that you put, the testing that you do on the, on the wind tunnel doesn't matter that much. So, uh, that means that uh, basically the work, the, the money that you spend there, it's worthless. However, does, does that mean that the wind tunnel doesn't have its place? It does, because it allows us to optimize other things. If you want to check if one wheel is faster than the other, I will probably, okay, you can do it on the, on the road, but probably you will be having much more accuracy on the wind tunnel. Or if you want to do some uh, skin uh, skin suit testing or tri suit testing, or if you want to optimize tissues uh, for the for the tri suit, probably want to do it on a wind tunnel or on with using CFT because then you can control much better. Uh, you have much more control over the, all the variables, and you can understand what would be optimal for a certain athlete or for at a, for riding at a certain speed. So that's the advantages of the of the of the wind tunnel. However, uh, for us doing the field testing is more uh, important because we actually want what we want is being able to get the the athlete to go faster and uh, for four hours. So it, for me, it only makes sense that you can actually ride in the position and try to do changes that then we can test. And if the riders are able to hold those positions, the the test will be positive. If not, the test will be inconclusive. So that's a bit how we operate. So can you go into some specifics about the field testing protocols then that you use? Yeah, so uh, normally we use uh, aerometers. We have several ways of working around this. And basically when, when we are approached by an athlete, we try to first uh, get all the information that they, they want. So the goals, motivations, injuries, and the equipment that they that they normally use and so that we can have a better understanding of what we are working with, basically, and creating the protocols that would suit their needs. So, for example, um, 
if we are working with a triathlete, we probably will be looking at uh, uh, their what are the. Of course, we are will be looking uh, at what we spoke before, the limitations. So uh, trying to do to, to probably do protocols that would influence the position, but uh, that would allow the, still the athlete not to suffer through during like good run off the bike, basically. Uh, and then uh, looking into, for example, doing several, probably two, three sessions, maybe, or normally we recommend a long-term program where we do several sessions like uh, 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 per month during several months to to check and validate the results that we have in each session. Because one issue that we have with uh, uh, road field testing is that in order to have accuracy and to understand uh, that the, the values that we are getting are correct, we need to do a lot of repetitions. We need to do different protocols, longer protocols, uh, spend more time testing. Uh, so basically testing becomes an endurance ride basically. Uh, but uh, uh, where we have to actually ensure that the 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 the, the results that we are having are accurate, because the the last thing that I want from an athlete that works with us is getting to the end and showing them uh, results that are inconclusive, or that we cannot say for certain that one thing is faster or slower, or for example, getting to the end of the session and saying to an athlete that one thing that is not correct. Yeah, no, exactly. That that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, I guess just to uh, to give an example, when when I've been doing road testing with you or my athletes have been doing it, then we have used six kilometers out and back. So actually, six kilometers out, six kilometers back. So twelve kilometer repetitions for each configuration tested. So so that's a good sort of eighteen minute repetition that you do for for each single setup, and that gives you. Um, a, a large number of data points to to assess the the variability and uh, the accuracy of the of of that configuration, so that you can calculate the error errors as well and and account for the errors in the in the measurement. Um, and and it makes a lot of sense, as you say, that for wind tunnel for research and development and for equipment uh, clothing and so on. But then when it comes to testing the athlete, they need to be able to hold it hold the position in the race. They need to be able to even to see where they're going that's something that i think even just riding on swift uh, a lot of athletes hold a position that that they're they're kind of maybe looking down or looking up a bit more than they would normally based on where they have their tv or <laughs> device of choice and uh so yeah actually doing the testing on the road so that you so that you make sure that okay this is a position that i can hold in a race so i can see where i'm going and uh that basically validates that it is a, an actual position that is possible to hold so yeah i think i think it makes complete sense and i i do like like that approach and um and then also it makes it a bit more realistic i think in terms of estimating then okay so what will i be able to do in my next race when you have tested on the road you know that okay i went x kilometers per hour for this power you already know that this is likely what it's going to translate to in a race but if you do it in the wind tunnel you get a cda that might be it might be it's it is what it is but you you still don't you don't know exactly well will it really translate to riding x amount of kilometers per hour or not so that's the yeah. question yeah, that's that that's a, a good point and for example one really good thing that because of longer protocols even though we we might do longer protocols and more repetitions of each setup it's still not guaranteed that we can actually have some conclusive data. And for example, we had some some 
some work with some pro triathletes from 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 Michael that you know that we did a testing. Oh, and when we ended up probably have to repeat the test just because the conditions were not perfect. So even even though we try to actually do that, uh, do the protocols, it might we might not still have conclusive data, and it's something that we have to be aware. Of. But that's just because. Uh, you know the way we do the protocols, we normally present the the data, the the results, and they also pre- present uncertainty. And one of the big issues that uh, I have with uh, normally with wind tunnel or any testing, or you know when when you read the literature, is that they present the the results, but they don't they don't actually present the uncertainty associated with the results. So normally they present, for example, let's say you go to the wind tunnel and they measure the HRCDA 0.2. However, uh, the way we are measuring, normally we measure CDA by averaging over a certain period of time, 30 seconds, one minute, whatever. And uh, normally, as you know, if you're taking an average, there's an uncertainty associated with that value. So your CDA will be 0.2 plus or minus, for example, the wind tunnel normally has uh, an error of 1.5 to 2.5%. So that means that uh, your CDA is 0.2 plus or minus 0.005, something like that. So, and for me, it's a bit frustrating when I go, when I check data online and I see, okay, there's uh, someone claiming that at 45 case per hour, this equipment or this setup is two kilometers, two watts faster than what we had before. However, the two watts, if you look, if you read it from, um, from, um, from like, if you actually see the data, probably statistically, it won't, that difference won't be significant. And that's something that people have to be aware of, that maybe that uh, we, what we want, we are talking about averages and it's not guaranteed that even, even though you go to a wind tunnel that you get more accuracy than doing the field testing because probably in the field testing, okay, you have more variability because of your position, but at least you know that, okay, <laughs> at the end of the day, if you go faster and the conditions are the same and actually the CDAs are the differences are quite significant you'll you'll notice right away oh this is faster or this is slower or i can hold this or i cannot hold this while you're with your if you're in the wind tunnel okay you can say this is faster they can tell you that it's one was or two was but you're not actually sure that you can actually hold that position or probably won't because what you tend to happen for example with the head position if you put your head position and you are looking between your your the tt extensions on the trainer that's pretty cool. However, that's not, uh, not that's not how you will be riding on the road because we want to actually have a clear camp of vision. So we will actually tend to raise our heads over time. Okay, for twenty kilometers TT, that's okay. Probably you will be actually uh, be able to ride a full TT in a really arrow position. But however, but if you try to do it for a hundred eighty case, you will try to you will end up to raise your head, and your position will be completely different from what you test in the wind tunnel. And that's what you see with normal, even with professional triathletes, you don't see them. If you take a photo from the side, you don't see them in the most arrow position, but probably in the most comfortable position they can held in the, that setup. So our goal is not actually to get the fastest setup possible, but actually get the fastest position that we can hold for that amount of uh, kilometers that we can have. And if that position is the fastest also, then that, that allows us the fastest run split, then we have a win-win situation. 
Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And uh, you mentioned earlier about you can use models in addition to the aerometers to to measure the aerodynamic drag and and do yeah basically come come to the conclusions that you that you come to from these tests. So can you talk about how you can use models alongside aerometers or even even sometimes um, when you don't have access to the aerometers, you can just use yeah. do this testing based on the models. Yeah, people have to understand that when we are talking about aerometers, we are, we are talking about uh, an equipment that has a couple of sensors. The sensors gather data, just like any sensor. And then you have a software that allows you to, to treat that data and have uh, models that will basically uh, translate that data into something that you want. So basically, if you're uh, what in this case you are talking about aerometer, we are wanting to capture CDA. So we will capture temperature, wind speed, power, cadence, uh, uh, wheels, uh, your uh, speed, ground speed, and you'll put that into a model and uh, you'll split out a CDA. That's how the, the aerometer works. So, uh, and those models have come normal you know it's are based are mathematical models that you can create on yourself an excel spreadsheet or a matlab you probably can create them uh, and the good thing about this is that physical models so there's not much in physics that you can uh, forget so it's pretty simple these models are based or can be uh, based on speed elevation they they can solve um, the the equation that to to obtain CDA in different ways. So it's just a matter of understanding what is the most reliable way of working of obtaining the CDA and consider the protocols and the environments that we are working with to with the athletes to obtain the the values. So for example, while for one athlete one type of model might work best. For example, if we are working for example with a guy in the velodrome. This, the models that I will use for a guy in a melodrome will be different from the models that I will use probably for a guy on the field because in the velodrome, for example, uh, maybe the aerometer is not as important as the um, as as on the road, and uh, even on the road, maybe the model that I will use will be different because if I'm doing an out and back test, I know more or less okay that the elevation will be more or less the same. So I can work with that and to 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 get the data out and actually get really, really good understanding of the athlete's performance. And the really good thing about working with these types of models is that once you get that baseline data and you work with the athlete, you can then put uh, can then play with the with the courses that the riders are doing, actually estimate to really, really accurately what the riders will input on race day and understand how much they could be, uh, improve or they are improving with the work that we are doing. And we can quantify this, those changes, which is pretty cool. And that's why we, I like to use this. And of course, by with these models, then if we apply the, say, the, the correct procedures, then we can also work remotely, as you said. And actually, of course, with some considerations doing sim having similar results as using an aerometer 
Yeah. And another thing that I've noticed when, when I've been doing testing uh, with you is that you use, even if you have the error meter, you use both the models and the error meter. So then it is a good way to validate if there is, for example, a problem with the, with, with a sensor. Let's say that it suddenly starts doing something weird with the, with the wind speed sensor and you get, you could get wacky results, but then the model won't obviously use the the sensor data the, from the the temperature and the wind speed from the aerometer. So so then you can see that okay something is wrong here and we need to figure out what what is right and what is wrong. And uh, yeah, it's it's just a basically a safeguard for not putting all your eggs in in one basket. Yeah, uh, for example, what if, because of course we are talking about sensors, equipments, artificial stuff that can go wrong. And the issue with all these sensors is that. They need calibration, and one big issue with uh, with error testing is the calibration procedure and the calibration factors that we use. And for example, if you have a no-show or AeroLab sensor or any other device that is coming, they will all need the calibration. And the calibration procedure is really hard because, unfortunately, we don't have an equipment or the the way uh, the way the the flow uh, the, the yeah the air flows around your body will affect the the wind speed that will be recorded by the aerometer so for example it might your your aerometer might say that uh, your the wind speed is one kilometer per hour a headwind at one kilometer per hour when it can actually be three or four and it's really hard and there are several procedures that they, they, these aerometers use to to try to estimate well the the, the wind speed measured but there could be some cases that the the calibration factory the factors will change a lot, and this is an issue because then you don't know. Okay, if one run the calibration factor is one value, then the other in the other the calibration factor is another, and you which one do you choose? So it's actually really good to have the models because in that way you can have okay, which ones make more sense basically, and based on that analysis provided with the with the concrete result and maybe the most approximated measurement of what's actually the the speed that you're recording and in the in that way actually having the most approximated uh, estimate of your cda or of your aerodynamic efficiency yep um we mentioned a few already but can you just summarize maybe some common mistakes to avoid when it comes to uh aero testing in general uh, so it, with this is uh, <laughs> one one would think of uh, uh, with this is uh, expecting to go faster and on a session. Uh, uh, for example, one one thing that people have to understand is that, uh, um, for example, um, expecting that uh, the results come right away, uh, that uh, you can get live CDAs. For example, uh, that's one thing that I've heard a lot, and you have. For example, the notion or any aerometer will provide you with some kind of uh, a CDA average right away. However, I would say that those values are normally just random numbers and that you have to take really consideration on it. Also, uh, there are several protocols out there that I don't think are accurate. So ensure that uh, the protocols, anything that you're doing is consistent and that you can actually make sense of the data that you're using. Uh, and uh, because it's pretty simple for me to say to an athlete that all setups are faster because the way the, the sensors, the aerometers work are, I can do protocols that are biased or I can select data because 
of course, as I've said, normally we when we measure CDA, we are measuring average values. So we have to pick data. And one big issue of this is that, unfortunately, if the testing procedures are not accurate, the uncertainty associated with the values that are uh, that are um, created by or that are inputted by the um, by the by the dieserometers will have really random variability. And uh, if you are not actually biased, if you are uh, if you are biased, you be you'll be able for sure to tell an athlete that their CDA will improve over time when that's actually not the case. And so that's something that I really would tell people that if it's too good to be true, and if you're, for example, let's say that you're riding, uh, uh, doing t testing, and someone claims that you're improving your CDA by 10%, okay, if you're not improving your speed by 1.5 kilometers per hour, at the same power output, probably it's not 10%, unfortunately, I'm sorry. But uh, but yeah, keep in mind that because it's really easy to be biased, especially because even uh, even I, if I want, uh, really, if I w would go to, to any of the Michael's athletes, I could tell them that uh, each setup would be like any testing procedure would be would have an improvement. That's for sure. That's why I use the models because the models are allow me to actually make sure that I'm not biased because the ultimate goal, or that, that's why I created a company, AeroEdge, uh, and uh, the ultimate goal that we want is actually helping, ride, helping athletes to ride faster. However, we have to also provide them with information and make sure that, <laughs> okay, if we cannot, if one setup is not faster than the other, they should know because that's also important, an important information because that means that what I thought would go would be faster, actually it's not. So maybe we have to look in another direction. Yeah, no, absolutely, great points. And uh, do you have uh, an aero optimization case study that uh, you can talk about? Uh, yes, and uh, fortunately, it's probably one of the maybe my best one, and uh, because it really relates to me, it's uh, from. Um, uh, an old friend that worked with started work with us in, in uh, October is from Portugal, and uh, his name is Luis Moleiro, and uh, he was an age grouper, and uh, he started work, working with AeroEdge in October, and uh, yeah, it's a really a really interesting case study because we are talking about an age grouper that was a really powerful athlete, and um, for example, but uh, we could see that straight away. Uh, actually, I, it was me that uh, when I launched the company, I actually contacted him if he wanted to be like also one of the, my first clients because I could see that there were a lot of things that we could improve. And fortunately, he listened and he, he followed the procedures over the last six months. And I can say that we went, we improved this uh, CDA by almost 20%, his aerodynamic efficiency, to the point that, uh, for example, in the... Um, we did a race in uh, 2022, uh, Stubal Triathlon. It's a 70. It's similar to a 70.3, basically held in Portugal. And in the cycling split last year, it did two hours 28. And um, this year, after we did some testing and um, we spent six months trying to work on his on his data for him to also understand the importance of this and to allowing time to adapt to the to the positions and to allow him time to, to do the changes required to achieve the, these these uh, these improvements. And 
when we get to the race, he was a bit nervous because the positions that we got in, he knew that he was riding fast, but he was not certain. And, uh, the, and one other factor is that it said he was not as in shape as uh, the last year. So his power output would be a bit lower. So he was not sure how he would perform. And I was actually a bit skeptical. So uh, actually, when I provided the the the, um, the splits or the the average speed that he would do over the course, I actually said uh, went a bit over, a, a bit under, just to ensure that he he would eat that target. I was actually pretty confident that he would eat it, but nevertheless, he well, I also I don't I never want to do give uh, bigger estimations than the one that I I think are possible because that's. It's always better that the athlete achieves the target that underachieves because that's uh, from a mental side, it's a hard race. So you at least it, want to achieve the target. <laughs> it's the famous U pod under promise and over deliver. Yeah. So, and uh, unfortunately, I had myself when I, I already uh, had some issues with it because I thought I would do some, some prescribed average and i would not eat it and i know how frustrating that is so uh you know i always try to ensure okay let's at least uh uh this is the target and it was still already two kilometers faster than, than last year but in the end uh he did uh, so in the 2022 he did two hours 28 and this year in, uh, in april he did two hours 20 and the funny part about all of this is that he put he was doing less 20 watts than last year and 20 watt less. Oh. <laughs> less and uh you went 2.5 kilometers faster and then the most the most important part is then he went to do a pb in the half marathon wow so can you summarize just quickly what were the most important changes you did to his setup uh with with which was <laughs> it was really literally changing his position the stacks the the reach uh which was um mostly about uh reach stack um of course we changed also the the wheels uh he had a, he had a disc wheel but it unfortunately was tubular so we had to change that uh we did also some work with the drivetrain um but mostly around the cockpit and the saddle position. So as you, as we've been discussing throughout this podcast, the, the most important part would be the, the, the position optimization. And that's where we gain. So of the 20% gain that we add, check, um, it was around eight, 12% was just because of the position. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, he was not, on, he was not on a 15,000 euro bike either. He was. Uh, no, 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 no. We are talking about an athlete that was riding a Canyon. Uh, a canyon of three and a half thousand, maybe around that normal standard uh, standard equipment. And fortunately, he did not have to spend. If we uh, one really good thing about this work is that normally, if you're smart, in the end you can come out even in terms of the investment. Normally, you might not be able because you get to a point that you will have to invest really, uh, really a lot to get the marginal gains, but. Uh, if you're uh, like, for example, with him, if we, are, we were talking about an athlete that was really promising, but did not have the highest setup. With him, it's actually pretty easy to, with uh, some smart investments to do a lot of improvements. And actually, in the end, he, he had to sell some equipment. So w- the money spent uh, selling the equipment, he invested in other equipment that actually was meant that uh, he went faster and for the say and did not have to spend money. So which was pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, on that note, what are your personal top three products or purchases 
that uh, you have done in terms of uh, aerodynamics or related to aerodynamics or testing? Well, for me, uh, well, for, for, for listeners of the podcast, that's pretty simple and I'm biased because of this, because I would consider that people would should contact AeroEdge for their upgrading their uh, aerodynamics, because of course that's, uh, uh, I'm biased, but that's actually uh, something that I really strongly believe that even if it's not AeroEdge or other provider, I think it's really useful that you have someone to go with you if you have to do any type of investment there's nothing better than having someone that actually knows their craft and to to tell them what's the best thing that you should do with your setup so uh, because the the last thing that you want to do is spend two and a half thousand or three thousand euros on a wheels when you could have spent 100 euros and uh, upgrade your performance by 10 or 15 percent so that's the first thing actually having someone uh, to guide you and I'm not different from anyone else. I the the way I do the investments for my personal uh, cycling uh, career is actually listening to experts and checking what are the latest trends. What can I do to improve? And everything that I've said here was came from uh, literature. So it's actually checking what other people are doing, checking the research and understanding. Well, of course, I have my theories, but at the end of the day, it's actually trying to go to uh, the experts in the field and. Trying not to uh, try to avoid as much spending, uh, going to the marketing claims of some companies because most of it probably it's, well, it's not correct or is it too, 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 too good to be true. Basically, the the, the second thing would be um, to focus on investing in equipment. Again, it's the theme of the podcast, but checking out things that can allow us to improve our position. So, um, because one thing that I, uh, that I mentioned is that you want to have uh, flexibility in the position. So the position, the optim- imagine that you're doing, uh, for example, I just had a co- an athlete that contacted me that wants to do uh, UCI national championships and it's a triathlon. Uh, that means that uh, we have to change the setup because uh, we have to fall to the UCI regulation. So it's good to have equipment at our disposal that allows us to do that but still achieve the most optimal position. So everything that involves like the bike fitting uh, of the cockpit, changing the, for example, stacks, having that available angle space, angled spacers, you know, uh, those sort of things I think are probably the best separate that anyone can do. And then the third would be, especially for triathletes, this is more for triathletes, for triathletes would be, uh, the, um, anything related to hydration and nutrition because there's a lot of things you can have uh, the fastest bike in the world but it, it does uh, if you cannot eat or access to nutrition easily the time the, the money you spend and the 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 the, the what safe is that the, that setup allows you to gain because of the the way it the way it's built will be lost just because you cannot reach to the bottles and you cannot drink enough or eat enough during an Ironman, and then you will bonk and you will not perform optimally, and you will think to yourself uh, that maybe that's that those investments are worthless. So, uh, really checking these three things are probably the the first th- key things because once you get the base, then we can start thinking other things. But these are the most important ones. That's great advice. However, I'm going to push you to answer specifically for yourself. What are your for my favorite products? Um, yeah, it's not. Oh, it, okay. it, it doesn't even have to be the best products, the best 
best okay. aerodynamic savings, but just your favorite, your top purchases, even if it's emotionally <laughs> emotional. Okay, value. but uh, so I'm just looking at my back. But what the the most important ones would be like uh, the cranks. I think those ones are something that I change completely the way I ride. Uh, then the handlebars. I, of course, I'm talking here for road biking, and uh, the handlebars are something that are <laughs> people know me that I ride, especially with my setup. It's actually quite extreme, and uh, fortunately, the way that that has worked uh, for me pretty well. Because unfortunately, I'm not the most gifted physiological athlete, so I had to work with what I have, and so fortunately, that uh, one a big part of it was the focus on that that optimization, and then. Uh, the saddle. Uh, the saddle is probably uh, something also that I did not address here, but uh, one big issue that uh, that normally, especially with female threats, that we need to really be careful. Normally, it's not mentioned a lot, but I think it should be more mentioned. Saddle source in female threats are really hard to 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 take and to really hard to manage. Especially if you have an athlete that has female traffic with saddle source, it's really, really something really complicated to to evaluate, and that's why you have companies like GeoBiomize that doing excellent work. And actually, looking a bit on your saddle position and uh, your saddle, uh, what fits you, uh, because there's not one size fits all. What fits you for yourself will be different for myself or for any other. So actually, the saddles that I bought, I have a ISM uh, PN30 and those saddles for me really work because I had a I I raced I'm in cycling for eight years and for six or seven years I'm struggling every day with saddles or so that's probably one of the most important uh, pieces of equipment that's often overlooked but probably that people should look more uh, often. And for handlebars, what what is the width for your handlebars? Since you mentioned them, uh, right now, well, I had uh, <laughs> the because right now we have the UCI restrictions. So I had a 32 center to center handlebar, a normal standard handlebar. But right now I changed my handlebars. There was a release of the AeroCoach Ornix new handlebars. Uh, they are pretty cool, and I've been racing them for a couple of uh, weeks. The only issue with these handlebars is that they, had, uh, let's say that my my bike is not mechanical um, uh, gears, so it's not electrical, not the I2. So Imagine the way the the handlebars were built for was more for electrical uh, um, electrical gear systems. So uh, let's say that the gear routing is not optimal, so I cannot actually optimize the setup as much. But the handlebars do actually look amazingly. So mm. that's a that's also a good part of this. But because of course normally the the most the most aero stuff actually looks amazing. So uh, it's actually something really cool. Yeah, um, one other. A question or a topic that I want to get to is discussing the importance of watts to CDA and comparing that to watts per kilogram. Uh, yeah, that's uh, well. Uh, for for listeners to understand, I've been uh, discussing this part for for a lot of time with Michael uh, because oh, off off the back because I've worked with Michael and also in terms of uh, um, with scientific triathlon as an athlete as well. And it's something that uh, you know, it's some, something common to to talk about, was per kilo, and so on. But for example, for 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 us to understand a bit, we at Aero Edge we did some work with um, with some analysis of the last year's Kona, uh, based on just data that we found, and uh, we just 
did some correlations between the performance and parameters like watts per kilo, watts per CDA, and absolute power. So if we look at the correlation between watts per kilo and performance-wise and speed, um, there was the we use the Pearson correlation factor. So for people that are no Excel, normally it's the R squared that you see on a graphic. And uh, if we correlate the watts per kilo with the speed, we find that the 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 there is there is only a correlation of zero point three uh, in the correlation of uh, the Pearson correlation factor. That means that there is a weak correlation between the performance in Kona and watts per kilo, for example. Uh, the same. This means that, for example, the same guy, or this, the the we you can have an athlete with the same watts per kilo and do five four hours of five, and you can and you have you can have another athlete with the same watts per kilo and doing four hours twenty five in the pro men's field, for example. If we look at uh, absolute power, the the correlation between power and speed is a bit higher, 0.6, as you expect. The more power you produce, the faster we'll go, pretty simple. And then we, we use the watts per CDA value. And we found that the, the higher the watts CDA, the, the higher the speed. And the correlation factor was from of one, 0.956. So it's a really strong indicator of performance, and the best indicator to address the, someone's performance is actually by looking not at the watts, not at the watts per kilo, but actually at the watts per CDA, because the watts per CDA allows us to to mitigate the, for example, the difference in power meters. Because, for example, if you have a power meter that reads too high, it means that your your CDA will also be too high. So, if you divide the both, you will actually have a, a parameter that is actually within what you expect. So this allows us, the WASPR CDA will allow us to actually take the measurements of the of the errors of measurement of the power and different power meters aside and actually comp uh, compare performances. So we know, for example, we are when we are working with uh, athletes from scientific triathlon, we know how much out can they compare to the other athletes and how much they would do in order to be first or to win the race or something like that. So, yeah. and of course, based on the, of this conversation of this data, we then understand, okay, people are always, unfortunately in triathlon and cycling, we look at a lot of weight. And this is a topic that has been discussed a lot in this podcast for several, in several episodes. But this data shows me, and, it, and I'm an athlete from the South Europe, so a lot of bias towards weight because of the terrain. We can see clearly that there is the correlation between performance and watts per kilo is not as high as people think. Yeah, no, I think I think that's an excellent point to talk about, and uh, but also it's just something that I, I think it's because it's so easy to measure. But what, just because something is easy to measure, it doesn't mean it's important. And and CDA is hard to measure. That's why nobody yeah. really is talking about watts per CDA. My watts per CDA is. 1000 or yeah. 1200 but that's if you, if you really want to optimize your performance that's where you have to look right. yeah you know the weight it's something that you can see you can feel the weight you, you cannot feel the cda unfortunately and uh, however one thing that you can feel is speed and yeah. uh, 
when you feel fast, you know, one really, one good thing about doing the field testing is that you can feel that you're faster right away. Or if something, something is off, you know that normally the athletes come to me, oh, this might be faster, this might be slower. I think this is faster. Normally their guess is actually pretty accurate with what they say because they can feel in the legs, oh, they are doing Ironman pace and I'm actually going a bit faster. So that's normally a good, a good indication that probably the data will be right. We cannot forget, for example, when we talked about remote testing, we cannot forget that we have been doing, there are, aerodynamics has been around for many, many years, uh, and people have been doing uh, um, uh, aero testing for decades. Uh, my business partner would always tell me that they would downhill tests and they would do the, their, their aerodynamics analysis like that. However, they did not, they knew that something was faster than the other, and the, 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 the other one setup was faster than the other, but they do not know how to quantify. The only difference right now is that we have the models and we and the, the equipment to actually do, do that analysis and quantify the differences and then correlate them with performance. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. And um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So, so the, what your point about when you do the field testing and you can you can feel speed, you can see speed on your computer. That's a good safeguard as well for if you if you happen to do testing with what you talked about earlier, somebody doing the testing in a biased way. You might, and I, I've witnessed this kind of testing before, uh, and uh, some some test provider might say that oh, your CA is zero point nineteen. But then if the speed is 37, 38 kilometers an hour on a flat road, then, then you can already know that, yeah, that's, that's just not true. Like speed tells the story. Speed is what you get to from, from T1 to T2. So, and, and if you, uh, if you're really at the pointy end and you want to, yeah, you, you know what speeds you need to, or even if you, whatever your goal is, you know what speed you need, you need to achieve to, to achieve a certain time goal. If you have a time goal in a race or even a position goal, you, you still know kind of more or less what the speed should be. So, so yeah, I think that, yeah, it's, it's something that, that it bears repeating and reminding people of because I think for a decade or so, probably the world of triathlon and cycling has been super, super power focused and almost, we're almost forgetting about speed. But speed is yeah. speed is what wins races. Yeah. At the end of the day, like many athletes come with me, and actually one of the few recommendations, as you speak about power, is that athletes come with me and to me, and we start doing testing. And normally, I've learned through this that actually we have to be really careful with the power meters because athletes come to me and oh, I'm putting 300 watts for two hours, and I'm an, an age grouper. Uh, and I ride at 35 k's per hour. The first thing that I ask them is actually to do a calibration procedure with their power meter because normally that's not accurate. So, uh, you know, uh, we can read a lot about uh, power, but at the end of the day, it's not the athlete that puts more power that wins the, the bike race or the triathlon race. It's like the, the, the athlete that goes fastest. So we ultimately want to go fastest, and that's our goal when they're doing this type of work. Yeah. One of the final questions here for today uh, we've kind of also talked about this a bit, but are there any myths or misconceptions still that that we haven't mentioned that you would want to to talk about or dispel? Uh, yeah, there is just actually one big one. Uh, just because you have an, an aerometer, it doesn't mean that you do will do a good job, uh, or that you will be able to do uh, to understand to to um, to get uh, reliable data. Uh, why do I say this? Uh, you know, 
it's like everything. You can have all the tools in the world. And even though you have the, all the tools in the world, it doesn't mean that you can do a good job. And one really, as I've been trying to show, is that this is actually involves measuring lots of lots of things. And we have to make a lot of considerations. Uh, because, you know, uh, for example, uh, simple stuff. If you start the testing at 8 a.m. in the morning, and if you do a four-hour uh, testing procedure, I can guarantee you that uh, if you have, um, let's say, the final setup is five watts faster than the, um, if you measure the CDA with a normal aerometer, and you and the, then you you came to the conclusion that the, the last setup is five five watts faster than the the baseline the, the baseline setup, I can probably assure you that. There's no difference between the baseline setup and the finished uh, setup, just because temperature increases. And people do not account for that increase in temperature. The increase in temperature will affect rolling resistance. The rolling resistance will, will de decrease. And uh, that decrease in rolling resistance will increase the speed that you ride at, so you will feel faster. So that's something that people forget, so, for example. So a, de a detailed follow-up about that. So because the aerosensors, they do have, they do measure temperature, but that's only they only account yes. for air density. They don't account for the rolling resistance change with temperature. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Imagine you have to set up the rolling resistance. You have to, and normally they can measure the temperatures. But again, it's sensors. And if the sensors are exposed to the sun, and let's say that actually the radiation is, is high, the temperature measure will be higher than the than what it should be. So even that will have errors. So the air density that will be measured by the sensor might not be accurate. And you can see that straight away if you use the golden sheet, if you do the run the post analysis of the data, you can see that if it, if actually the data is useless, is, is, you can use the data or not, just because. If you start, uh, let's say that we do a 30-minute set of with multiple runs, and you can see that maybe your air density, if your air density fluctuates a lot, you'll have a wrong data. And normally, what you have people at the end, you have an average CDA, and people say, oh, the CDA improved. No, that's not the case. If you, if you, um, if you don't do the post-analysis of the data and you don't consider these factors and you don't consider the, the variations in temperature, and it will be hard to tell you if what is faster and how much is it. So that's where many people get wrong because they think that it's only, oh, we are only measuring one variable or two, power and CDA. No, we are measuring 10 and we are trying to ensure that all 10 are actually within a, a, a margin of error that is access, acceptable for us to get actually uh, statistical uh, differences, which is normally really hard to do. Yeah. Are there any other myths or misconceptions still, or is that the main one? Uh, and oh, believing that, um, that um, for example, the claims of the manufacturers or, or that the... For example, if you if you hear that uh, one thing is three watts faster at fifty five k per hour, uh, it's probably that is meaningless, and because people forget that the aerodynamic drag is exponential. So, for example, if I have a, a company that claims that there's a gain of three watts at thirty kilometers per hour, per hour, okay, there I'm listening because to over that means that the power savings in terms of percentage-wise would be 3 or 
While, for example, if the same company claims that I, we save 3 watts at 55k kilometers per hour, it means that we probably save around 0.5. Uh, basically, the, the, the CDA saving is around 0.5%. So that's within the margin of error of the wind tunnel. So probably there's some selection bias in the wind tunnel, which uh, probably would lead me to believe that that's not accurate at all. Then... Of course, another thing is that believing that, uh, for example, in the terms of the tri suits and skin suits, is that thinking that just because it's faster on one athlete, it will be faster on myself, and that's not normally the case because the the tri suits and skin suits will depend on the body and the speed that you're riding it and the position. For example, uh, I gave my personal mistake that I did. I bought a 500 euro tri suit. That was supposed to be one of the fastest in that ever, or ever not, or, well, available in the market. And I got to use them, and it was lo- slower than bibs and jersey that I normally use for racing. So, I mean, in the of course, in the aero position is one thing, in the road position is slightly different, but still, for me, it's slower. And it's no matter what, uh, I wanted to change the data because I spent too much money on it, but unfortunately, I can't, and it's slower. And it's frustrating, but it's the reality. So, we, it's uh, people have to understand that actually doing in terms of the clothing wise, being smart about the investment, me really sure. Actually, this this is one part that where testing is more important before actually buying because we are not sure that actually the clothing wise, if something will be faster or not. Because I've had many things: golf cards, uh, socks, uh, overshoes even helmets, uh, those types of equipment that will, ch- will will affect the body, the body will normally not be uh, as straightforward or as, uh, as for example, manufacturers tend to, to say that they will be faster than everyone. It's not. Yeah, actually, that, that leads us to one important thing that we maybe should have talked about earlier with the testing protocols in terms of what order do you test things in? And because depending on your position, a different... A suit might be faster than the other so it's really important that you focus on the position on the body position first right before you start to focus on what what the equipment what equipment is faster if you have two helmets for example lying around and you start you can think that well it's easy to test the helmet so let's start with that but then you test the helmet you see which one is faster but then you change your position completely and maybe in the in the new optimized position the other helmet would have been faster so it's just a, a bit of a waste to test the helmets first of all right in in that sequence of testing yeah so normally we that's why we try to focus on position first because First, we have to try to find a position that allows us to the shape of the body, improving the shape of the body in the frontal area, and in then trying to work within what we coupons that we have, and it's trying to understand. Okay, now that we have the position that we think we can probably not change for a long time, okay, let's start to check uh, the rest of the stuff, the equipment, uh, t- uh, cockpits, uh, wheels, or something like that. So, but the most important is always the position. But yeah, you're right. It, if you're if you're starting doing aero testing and the first thing that you test is wheels and skin suits, you're probably in the wrong path. Yeah. Should we move on to the rapid fire questions, or is there anything else that you want to mention still before that? Uh, I think we covered everything. We covered everything. Good. So, what is your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Well, as you, as I've said in the intro, and uh, well, I'm doing the work with uh, uh, the uh, scientific triathlon and doing the show notes for the podcast. So, of course, uh, 
uh, I'm an avid listener of podcasts and that version show is probably the, the one that I follow the most, I have to. And uh, But of course, actually, in terms of this area of aerodynamics, and I've learned a lot of it, of it and there's really, really good uh, a really good podcast called Hitting Your Innovation with uh, Michael Lieberson and Andrew Bookrill. They are not; they have not been doing a lot of um, uh, episodes, but they have still a lot of really good uh, episodes of focus on this area. And if you want to learn more about the the limitations and everything related to uh, to to this area, they are probably maybe the best broadcast out there on on this topic. And then also uh, the physical performance show with Brad Beer, everything that involves physiology and uh, triathlon running. I really, really like to follow in it because they, it's a really also a unique approach to, to the podcast. And I really like to hear it. I'm actually chatting to Brad tomorrow. So that's exciting. All right. Awesome. Uh, what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? All right. Uh, I would say uh, three things, uh, especially uh, with the way I approach in the cycling world. First, being consistent. I mean, uh, I unfortunately I've not been physically gifted to with a high VO two max to perform in a professional world. So you know, the being consistent with everything that I do in terms of work and training uh, really helped me to at least uh, get to a point that I can dream a bit, which is more than maybe some most people can. So that's pretty cool. And. Uh, then, of course, uh, having discipline to continue putting in the work, accepting the process and the procedures and believing in the, you know, in the theories and tr- at least tr- uh, trying to have an idea and working with it and sticking with it for a period just to ensure that we can uh, get something out of it. And self-reflection, uh, in spending some time thinking of what I do and trying to, you know, continue to try to fine-tune everything that I do and trying to improve uh, if we start, if we think that we know everything, we are losing. So uh, yeah, I prefer to think that I'm dumb and I that I still have a lot to learn than to think that I know everything. So uh, that's something that I always keep on on top of my mind to ensure that I can continue learning and keep humble enough to understand that I still uh, need a lot. I have a long way to still uh, to become successful in everything. And who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Well, it's this is not because I've thought a bit about this, and I've I've many people that I've met throughout the years uh, uh, in the sports world academically that I could mention. But you know, uh, it's not because we are having this podcast. Uh, but of course, I've known Ma- Michael for a long time, and Michael has become a kind of a mentor and a friend for me. So yeah, uh, and Michael is actually someone that I actually you know personally I really look to, look up to in terms of these the way. He, you organize scientific triathlon, the way you organize this coaching business and it's, you know, it's life in general. And I always look uh, to him on a personal side. And, uh, and yeah, and though, of course, and not only from personal, then from a sports world, everything that uh, you like. One thing, uh, actually, this is actually a good thing because of the, the even with the, the, the training plans and working with scientific triathlon, one thing that uh, coaching-wise that I think it's important is that People should learn from it and become autonomous in the you know in the work that they do and become in learning from it. And one really good thing that uh, I've been able to do in the last few years with working with scientific triathlon was that learning and becoming realizing that I could do things differently and approach a tra- 
pro approach sports in a different way. And in that way, that led me actually to uh, develop Arrow Edge and doing continue this pursuing this sports world and actually being more successful than I would if I would not have this confidence and this knowledge that I have right now. Well, thank you. That means a lot to hear. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, finally, where can uh, people follow you and follow Aero Edge? Well, they can follow myself uh, personally as a, a cyclist almost in every social media. So Instagram and, and Facebook. They can follow Aero Edge mostly on uh, on on Instagram. I don't. We don't have a Facebook or Twitter account. And we also have a website. So, and if people want to reach out, I can also, we can also put my email on the show notes. And, uh, and if want, people want to reach out and start, you know, learning more or having a consultation with us, uh, I, we are just, we can start talking and, uh, you know, to, to learn a bit more. And because the ultimate goal for us is actually, you know, uh, providing the knowledge. And that's why we also here in the podcast to try to, you know, to try to to mis to start um, uh, explaining why we how how, com how complicated is performance and how can we improve it basically. So uh, that's our goal basically. Yeah, no, I definitely recommend people people follow you because you post a lot of interesting stuff, and uh, so it's it's well worth it. And um, yeah, thank you so much, Bernardo. It has been uh, I always learn so much <laughs> talking with you about uh, anything, but this topic especially, I I think that I've really found so much knowledge that I didn't have even just a year ago by having more frequent uh, conversations about aerodynamics with you and uh, and that's yeah I really appreciate that and I hope that now the listeners can take part of a, uh, a bit of that as well so thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge all right thank you Michael I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. And as you heard, they are written by Bernardo himself. Uh, we have a number of related episodes that will be linked there. I won't list them all uh, here verbally, but they will be in the show notes. Uh, and uh, if you want to improve your triathlon performance and level up to achieve your next goal, then uh, probably the single best thing that you can do is to get some expert help along the way. Uh, we at Scientific Triathlon provide coaching services that cater to every need from beginners to professionals, where the athlete is in the center, the coaching is grounded in communication and individualization, and the coaches all have a wealth of experience, knowledge, and coaching skills. If coaching is out of your budget or not for you, we also have uh, ready-made training plans for different athlete levels and goal events and hundreds if not thousands of athletes have already set big pbs and reached new performance levels with these plans uh, we also have exchange and or money back guarantees on these plans so uh, it's a no risk investment you can find out all about our coaching training plans customized training plans and consultation options on scientifictriathlon.com and if you want to discuss your options further you can email me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a k Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. If you're looking for electrolytes and fueling products, I would highly recommend trying them out. You can use their free fuel and hydration planner or even a free video consultation with the team to prepare your race strategy. And don't forget to take 15% off your first order with the code TTS23. And thank you to Zenate. Use Zenate swim training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Zenate workout done that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on senatefinker.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.